At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me today for The Bigger Picture is Tim Price, Director of Price Value Partners, as we look at some of the things that are happening in the economic world today. I mean, Tim, the pigeons are coming home to roost, aren't they? I mean, last time we we spoke, um, you were sort of warning of many of the problems that now seem to have actually manifested themselves. I think last time we spoke, we central banks were talking about how inflation was was purely transitory. Yeah, the transitory read, of course, permanent. Um, so we were actually going to look in the office earlier this morning on um, looking at ten-year, you know, Treasury bond yields, which are backing up quite, quite you know, pronouncedly. This has been a long time coming. So if, if nothing else, people have had plenty of time to sort of mentally prepare for this. But it's it's still kind of shocking to see the monetary system unraveling seemingly in real time. Hmm. So t- tell me about ten-year bonds. No, just the, the yields have spiked. I mean, where where are ten years now? Two point four percent in the in the U.S. ten year, which is basically the benchmark so-called risk-free rate for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the rate at which things like mortgages, commercial paper, you know, bond bond borrowing, all priced off that rate. The last time I'd looked, it was something like one point eight, and it's it's coasted effortlessly up through two percent. Sooner or later, these things are going to make a difference because. The, the impact of the bond market is, is not that well appreciated by many investors. The bond market is a very institutional market. So the, the typical trading size for a, a government bond is something like $5 million. So it's completely, un, you know, it's completely unworkable for private investors to play in. It's where big, big money institutions play. Uh, but I can't overstate the fact that the bond market by size and value dwarfs the stock market. So if the bond market suddenly starts to go into reverse, which it seemingly now is, as it should be because of the heightened inflation pressure, then that is not a comfortable backdrop for, in this case, US growth stocks. Yes. Okay. Well, you've, I mean, last time we spoke, you were warning about inflation. You were also warning about um, people's contentment with with growth stocks. And I mean, I, I can't remember if it was your analogy at the time, but I seem to recall sort of Roadrunner running off the, you know, a cliff and looking yeah, down I mean, and then the, suddenly the, realizing there's, there's, there's nothing there. there. Yeah, I mean, there's been so much complacency for a while. It's, it, it just, it's, it's quite staggering. The, the growth, I mean, we, we're value managers. You know, the, the clue is in the sort of title. Um, so we, we, we focus on what, what you might call defensive you know, values or valuations. So we've never really been that interested in the, the more conspicuously overvalued, the more of expensive stocks. The likes of the, sort of the Facebooks and the Amazons of this world. But a rising interest rate environment is something that really nobody has seen now for trying to think basically the early 80s. The early 80s was when sort of treasury yields and inflation were both high double digits, like sort of 16, 17, 18% level. Um, And then, of course, Volcker, Paul Volcker came in at the Fed and basically squashed inflation. 
Now, that wasn't an easy thing to do. So he had to aggressively hike interest rates and ultimately ended up getting death threats. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't it wasn't an easy environment. But that was basically the start of a secular bull run, both for interest rates, i.e. bonds, and by extension, because they get everything, everything's relative, it was also great, the start of a great bull run for stocks as well. But that's a 40-year period that's now, that super tank is now slowly starting to turn a corner, it's starting to go into reverse. So effectively, if you're, if you're an advisor or an investor or a, a fund manager, looking at the basis of recent history, you're looking out of the rearview mirror, and that is the wrong analog for what's likely to come. Yeah, Captain Scarlet could manage that, but I'm not sure anybody else can. <laughs> well, there we go. We are now that's uh, bringing back some memories. Yes, I don't know why that image suddenly came to mind. I used to find it fascinating as, as a child. When um, central banks were talking, I mean, the Fed and the Bank of England in particular, about inter- inflation being transitory, do you think they actually believed it then? No, I don't, I don't think they even believed their own, you know, the, the nonsense pouring out of their own mouths. So I don't think, well, unless they've all drunk, the, they've all drunk their own Kool-Aid, um, but I mean, how any, any central banker, this is an impossible situation for them. They, they box themselves into a corner. They can't realistically do much by way of raising rates, except these kind of micro tweaks of sort of 25 basis points, a quarter of a percent at a time. All they can realistically do is attempt to try and sort of talk down the market or try and, try and suggest that they're, they're going to be tough on inflation. The reality, of course, is they can't. If they were remotely aggressive, uh, hiking rates, they would crash the property market, they'd crash the bond market, they'd probably crash the stock market too. So all they can do is take baby steps towards trying to sort of massage monetary policy slightly slightly more hawkishly. This is a disaster that nobody... No, no, I thought that the House of Cards would come down on Greenspan's watch, and then Bernanke came in, and then Yellen, and now Powell. It looks like the proverbial is sitting the fan on Powell's watch. This is a problem you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Mm. Um, have we even got the sort of inflation where rises and in interest rates are going to make much difference? Well, this is a good question. So, you know, they've said that, well, whatever the most recent policy announcements that they've hiked, they've tightened by a quarter of a point from like 0.0 to 0.25 or 0.25 to 0.5. Big deal, given that the official inflation rate hugely understates what the real inflation rate is. Real inflation in the Anglo-Saxon economy is probably running at about 15%. So, I noticed the other day when we got CPI at 6.2%, RPI, which is the one we always used to use as being an example of how you know the ordinary Joe feels prices are going, that's 8.2%. 15%, how are you getting getting that from produced prices? I mean, it's, I mean, it's just a, it's a, a shot in the dark, but um, you only have to look at what's happened to energy prices. You don't have to look at fuel bills. You don't have to look at people's council tax payments, which are now coming due for the new year, new, new fiscal year. The price of everything is going through the roof. And the way supermarkets are responding is, is through shrinkflation. So you get you pay the same amount or more and get less product as a result. This is a sad, um, it's like an April Fool's joke. I don't think anybody believes the official inflation rates. And um- Clearly, then, the cost of living is going to, I mean, excluding the investment picture for you know, ordinary people, cost of living is going to be, um, it's going to be, it's going to be incredibly brutal. important. And yeah. the war in Ukraine, obviously, is going to make it even even worse. Um, but I, I don't think people should be sidetracked by, by the, the misinformation about Ukraine. Clearly, Ukraine's important because Russia is an important energy and Ukraine is an important um, 
materials produced, not least wheat. But the bottom line is, is this, that this high inflation that we're now experiencing has very little to do with the Ukraine situation. It has everything to do with the trillions of dollars that have been printed by central banks over the last decade mm. or so. And that process actually accelerated over the last two years during, during the so-called COVID crisis. This inflation has been a long time coming. And to, 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 to cite the words of Ludwig von Mises, the, you know, the great um, so-called Austrian or classical economist, um, inflation is not an act of God. Inflation is not something that arises um, like, a, like a play. Inflation is a policy. And we know that the central bank, well, we know that the governments of the world are drowning in debt. So it's no real surprise to see that well, they're going to be beneficiaries of this process because they can inflate away the real value of that debt. But mm. it's a disaster for consumers. Yes. Um, Tim, let's pause. I'd like to go back to that, if we may. Sure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm Simon Rose in conversation with uh, Tim Price, Director of Price Value Partners. Um, Tim, you were saying that you know, one, one should not believe that Ukraine is responsible for all the, the current um, inflation problems. It's been a long time coming and has rather more to do with central banks just pumping money into the economy. You were talking about how much they've been doing even since since COVID started. I mean, perhaps elaborate on that a little more, as I suspect many people uh, probably haven't appreciated having other things on their plate, just what's been happening. Sure. So to, to put some of these figures into context or the trends into context, the Federal Reserve was established in 1913, the US Central Bank, to conduct monetary policy to, to try and keep a lid on inflation. And it's, it has a dual mandate, so it tries to keep inflation, it claims to try and keep inflation low, and also tries to secure full employment. Well, we can't do both anyway. It's beyond the central bank to be able to do any of these tasks anyway. Nevertheless, it's been around since 1913. In 2020, 25%, a, a quarter of all the dollars that had ever been printed were printed that year. I suspect the figure for last year, 2021, is, is going to be comparable. People have no idea of the magnitude of monetary destruction, monetary debauchery that's been going on really since, ultimately going back to the 70s when Nixon took the dollar off gold, but in particular since the, since the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, the money prints have been in overdrive and COVID gave them an extra, an extra fillip to that process. So uh, it, it, this, this high inflation, a non-transitory inflation, should not be a surprise to anybody. And I think you talked in one of your newsletters, didn't you, about little known um, incident where the Fed actually um, were pumping money in because the, it looked as if some of the the banks were in trouble early yeah, in the so pandemic. It was, was a very a very weird situation in the money markets in Q3, Q4 of 2019, predating the COVID crisis. So those people who are drawn to cons so-called conspiracy theories might actually argue that or might be amenable to the idea that actually the, the lockdown had nothing to do realistically with 
um, COVID per se, it had everything to do with trying to trying to shore up the system from crashing. Because you, you you didn't allow people to go to work and trade normally because it would have been too much too much damage would have been you know, placed on mm. the system. So we had to free put everything into the you know, into the deep freeze. Um, either way, there's been all kinds of manipulation and bailout, uh, sort of stealth bailouts going on on Wall Street um, without any reference to the popular media. It, the, this is why the media can't be trusted. Um, there are things happening behind the scenes, but nobody's reporting them. Well, let's talk. Let's look at the media now. We, we, we're going to talk later. Uh, uh, your favourite subject, the growth versus value, as you say. The, the you know the, the hint is in the name, price value partners. But before we do that, then let's talk about the the media and 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 what I know from your book, um, investing through the looking glass. That's the right title. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Investing through the looking glass. I mean, you talk quite a bit about how um, uh, sensible investors should not pay too much attention to media. Okay. Particular radio stations excluded, of course. Oh, um, certain glorious exceptions, obviously. Yes, yes. So, do tell us why you're so distrustful. I think basically, you know, I've been. I talk about this with colleagues you know, quite frequently. Anybody that was that was trying to get objective commentary on the Brexit debate found it was impossible because the, almost the totality of the media was fell in line with the rest of the establishment was pro-Europe. Then after Brexit theoretically at least got delivered um we had trump and again the, the media coverage was extraordinarily slanted against trump and in favor of you know the democrats and then we've had covid make what you will of the media's presentation of you know the the nhs or the vaccine delivery or the vaccine arms etc 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 the bottom line is that i think many people would now concede that big media cannot be trusted to give an impartial view on geopolitical and economic events, there is there is a there is an uh, implicit or explicit bias, and that's not necessarily an issue because you could argue that the media should never be trusted because journalists are not necessarily you know, moral, you know, super mm. superheroes. They're just you know they're like everybody; else. they're like normal people. But the in relation to the market, there's a there's a sort of a, a, a quick way through this this, this thicket which is you just look at the price of things. If you look at the price of things in isolation, you don't have to worry about interpretations of slightly subjective or very subjective um, narratives. You just say, well, what's the price of X? And if the price is going up, then you buy X. If the price is going down, you sell it. Hmm. So the beauty of taking a, a valuation or a price-based approach is it cuts through all this, this, so this thicket, this jungle, this maze of, of misinformation. The price is the price. It's the one thing that, that is, you can't argue with. You just have to accept the price is, is what's given to you. So that actually makes our job easier. Yeah, and away from investment then, if, if you're so distrustful of all the media, I mean, how do you actually find out what is going on in the world? It's a very good question. World? It's a very good question. But as value managers, we don't really need to understand, to, to, to think we need to understand everything about what's going on in the world. We're driven almost exclusively, probably exclusively, by bottom up valuations of listed companies. So whether they're mining companies or whether they're you know, auto parts makers or whatever they are, the, the bottom line is that those companies that are listed have to report their earnings and their revenues every quarter, four times a year. If they are deliberately misleading about those earnings, they'll go to jail. At least they will in the sort of G7 type markets. So 
what we're primarily if not exclusively concerned with is are these companies making good cash generation returns answer yes in the, the case of the stuff that we're trying to buy are those companies operating with little or no debt the critical factor for companies going into let's say let's say for the sake of argument we're going into a global recession which feels feels kind of like what you know the, the, the situation on the ground our primary if not exclusive concern is can they keep making the kind of money that they, they they've been making say for the prior 12 month period and are they ensuring that they're not over levered the problem for many companies particularly in the states is that they're coming into these stormy waters they've never had more that their debt on their balance sheet and, and as a result it's life is going to be interesting for more highly levered companies if um all of a sudden their, their prospects aren't looking as rosy as they, they did 12 months ago or 24 months ago yeah and, and in that sense you know even the even the share price is, isn't that isn't isn't a, you know a be all and end all if we can buy good cash generative companies cheaply and the share the shares are, are, are behaving as such that they're basically being given away that's that's fantastic for us but the share price in isolation isn't the be all and end all the be all and end all is the, is the underlying corporate you know um, health of the, of the company mm. So getting away from investment, though, just for a moment, Tim, because I know you're always interested in what is happening around the world and indeed in, in, in history, I know, from, from chatting to you. But I mean, how do you then perceive what is happening if you are so distrustful of everything you read, if you've got sources well, I, you I, do I, trust? I guess the way I look at it from a personal perspective is I think it's a line of uh, from Ronald Reagan during the Cold War about the Russians, which is trust but verify but I guess I'd, I'd probably slightly tweak it and say I would probably distrust and verify. So, mm. you know, clearly, I mean, I, I have a subscription to a variety of, of newspapers and media outlets, and I look at the say the, the BBC News website first thing in the morning just to get an idea of what the enemy's thinking. Uh, but the bottom line is I don't trust anything anymore. I don't see how anybody realistically can. We've been fed nothing but lies, it seems, for the last two years. Uh, in relation to COVID and, and related nonsense. So I'm actually much more interested in what, say, fellow financial market professionals are thinking. Mm. The great thing about, I mean, social media is, is portrayed as being this, this evil thing, and it's certainly not perfect. But the great thing about social media is it's also a fantastic networking tool to, to, to reach, to read, to communicate with like-minded people. And it's like, human, you know, it's like humanity, all human life is there if you look look hard enough for it so you can find your own sort of community of like-minded people you need to be worried about confirmation bias because then you'll just become an echo yes. chamber yeah but as long as as long as you can keep a, an open mind and you know again trust or distrust but also verify it doesn't matter if the, if the mainstream media is not doing the job because there are plenty of other sources i mean I, i'm not even sure it's a big sort of a big perspective but i'm not even sure mainstream media will survive this crisis there's such a lack of trust, I think, across the world from people who would otherwise be consumers of their product. I can see, I, I'm not even sure I can see the BBC surviving for a few more years at this rate. Mm. But nobody believes them on anything. Mm. Uh, let's take another uh, brief break. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with Tim Price, Director of Price Value Partners. Um, 
Tim, let's go back then to what we were discussing right at the, the beginning, how um, what's going on with inflation and the bond market is going to be incredibly important for the stock market, and particularly for anybody who's been um, clinging to the coattails of, of growth stocks. So you have, I mean, for a long time, been very sceptical about growth stocks anyway. You invest, as you, you know, the, the title of your company um, suggests, in, in value. You believe that over time, value will always see you right, even if it's out of favour for a time. Yeah, that's, that's the, the essential thesis. So the, I guess the logic is that I mean, we're, we're probably closer to absolute return investors than anything else in that we, we hate to lose money. So we'd much rather make um, a modest amount when the market's losing money rather than trying to chase for outsized returns and then go down with, in, with the same alacrity when the market collapses. So we'd much rather generate a, a long-term stream of hopefully decent returns mm. and preserve capital on the downside. So that, that, that's clearly more in line with value, classic value investing. So we define value investing as basically securing high quality assets, but, but not having to overpay for them. Um, the, the problem with growth is it's, it's, it's fantastic when it's working, but when it stops working, which it seems like it's on the cusp of doing now, particularly in relation to the so-called fans, you know, the likes of the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Netflixes, the Googles in the US, when they fall, they fall really hard. So we, you know, we, we don't want to be exposed to that kind of level of potential mm. loss. We'd much rather deliver steady any type of returns. And the, the, the incredible thing about the environment we're now in is that people, I think, should rightly be concerned about inflation. But the one area of the market that offers you inflation protection, a hedge against inflation, is the commodities sector, is real assets, as we would call them, listed businesses that, that derive their earnings from the supply of commodities around the world, particularly precious metals, because they're particularly cheap, and the shares are particularly cheap for those mining interests. Just at the time when most people probably want heightened inflation protection in their portfolio, it's being given away in the market. For, it's, it's being given away practically for nothing. So there are two indices that we look at. There's a ratio between the, the so-called constant commodities index, the CCI index, which is an in, a broad basket of commodities, and the S&P 500 stock index, which is the equivalent of our FTSE mm. in, uh, in America. If you compare those two indices, commodities have not been this cheap relative to listed paper assets for 60 years. In other words, commodities haven't been this cheap relative to stocks in my lifetime. And just at the time when people probably want inflation protection, that's that's completely bizarre. But we don't really mind. We're not really trying to understand why that mismatch occurs. We're mm. just delighted to be able to exploit it on behalf of our clients. Yes. So you're not somebody who at a fund manager's meeting would sort of boast about relative performance compared to other fund managers. You feel no, that's, that, that that's sort always, of metric is, is yeah, useless. That's always been a complete farce, which is why I say absolute return. So. The, the, the nature of absolute return objectives is it's, it's you're trying, you won't necessarily always work because nothing works forever all the time. But what you're trying to secure is a cash plus or an inflation plus return, as opposed to saying, well, we'll try and, we'll try and track the FTSE. Because if FTSE goes down 20% and you're only down 15%, you can't take that relative performance of 5% to the bank. You can't take a loss to the bank, but an absolute return you can. So I think that the whole way that the fund management industry is configured is basically it's doing a very poor service to the end client most of the time. Um, and if people have been investing in indices or um, 
in growth stocks and will want to learn more about value investing. Do they still go back to, I mean, Benjamin Graham is the sort of the father of, of value investing. Is, it, is, is his stuff out of date now? Would you still recommend I, no, I read him? I think it's timeless. I mean, if you, if, you, if you speak to someone like Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett's still with us, and he says he's learned everything from, from Ben Graham. Warren Buffett was the student of Ben Graham's at Columbia Business School. He's the only one that got an A from, from Ben Graham. Um, which kind of tells its own story. So yeah, the, the book in question is The Intelligent Investor, which was written in the 40s. Um, some of the language probably will look a little bit a little bit stale on that because it's you know it's it's of its time, but the, the underlying message is I think is completely completely as relevant as it ever has been. And basically, this, to sum up the Ben Graham thesis, it's one, don't buy rubbish, don't buy poor quality stocks, and B, when you've found good quality companies, just don't overpay for them. It couldn't be simpler. It could be as simple to articulate strategy, but you know, people love making the, those. Buffett himself mm. said people love making this business more complicated than it needs to be. Yes, you have an element of trend following in your funds as well, don't you? Which is well, something private investors can't do. We cannot manage to count the discretionary service, which is a sort of full, full blown mm. sort of wealth management service. We also use trend following funds, yes, and they're a form of momentum strategy, which is the antithesis really of value investing. But the reason we invest in trend followers. Is because they offer us a, a completely independent return stream, um, which is far more diversified. So they could be at any one time tracking prices or price trends in soft commodities, hard commodities, interest rates, currencies, you name it. They may have no equity market exposure at all, or if they do, it's so likely to be short as it is long. Hugely diversified as a strategy. Uh, but the, the primary reason we use these funds is because because we have equity exposure anyway, long only equity exposure, we want something that's uncorrelated to that. And typical trend following fund is, has zero correlation to the stock market. So it's a perfect diversifier for us. Tim, um, thank you. I'd, I'd recommend something else for investors that you have a, a free weekly commentary on your website, which certainly is um, not necessarily the same as many other things that you might get to, <laughs> to read. So do have a look out for Tim's um, weekly commentary on Price Value Partners uh, website. Uh, anything else that people should read? You think, start with Benjamin Graham and go on from there. Yeah, I mean, I'd give a plug, to, a plug to the book. People can get a free copy of The War on Cash, which I wrote in 2015 from the website. And if people want to shell out a bit, it's very, very reasonably priced Then they could go for investing through the looking glass, which I wrote in 2016, I think. And I think there's an interview with you on um, Share Radio's um, website somewhere about well, that's, that. That's where people should start. Yes. Uh, Tim, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Tim Price, Director of Price Value Partners. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.